Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, welcome. It is Downtown, the podcast, episode number 265. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Rich Kimball and Carrie Haskell here with you talking music this week on the program. Just one guest because we had uh, quite an extensive conversation with the multi-talented Mark Lindsay. Uh, you may know him best as the front man, the lead singer of Paul Revere and their Raiders, the Raiders and their great string of hits uh, back in the 1960s and early 70s, some 24 Hot 100 hits. Also had a number of solo hits. Uh, went on to a career uh, briefly working as an A&R guy for United Artists Records. These days, hosts a terrific show on Sirius XM Radio. Little Steven's Underground Garage, it's called. Mark Lindsay's American Revolution. We had a chance to chat about all that with Mark Lindsay here on Downtown. I'd like to go back to the beginning, not, not of time, but of uh, uh, your life and your career, if we could. <laughs> <laughs> It's going to be a long interview if we go back that far. <laughs> well, let's go back to, uh, let's just go back to about as far as Idaho. Uh, growing up there, you're born sure. in Oregon, raised in Idaho. And, and the story of you and Paul Revere getting together would be unbelievable if it weren't true that, well, you guys go together like, like burgers and buns. Here's what happened. <laughs> I left home at 15 and went down to uh, southern Idaho to uh, the Boise Valley area. Got a job at McClure's Bakery, and I met a guy uh, who taught me a few chords on guitar. But right across the street from from where he lived, which was near the College of Idaho, which was which is means it means nothing to this interview. <laughs> but anyway, but. He, he was kind of a country guy. He played a lot of uh, Chet Atkins and stuff. But right across the street was a little was a burger or a hamburger stand and the little house next door where the owner lived. And the owner would go in, would have uh, these uh, practice sessions, and it was all rock and roll. And I thought, man, that's cool. If, if I can finally get a bit in the band like that, now that would be cool. Well, one thing led to another, and I got a job with uh, Freddie Chapman and the Idaho Playboys as being the uh, rockabilly singer in the band. So I'm uh, I'm doing that on weekends and stuff, and that's all cool. But uh, I still am, am yearning to be in, a, in an all-rock band. So when I, I'm... I'm okay, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. So let me, <laughs> let me slow down here and catch up here. So I'm working at McClure's Bakery, and I hear that there's a, a show, a, a concert down the street at the, at the Elks Lodge, or Elks Hall. So I go down there, I get all dressed up, and I've got my glasses on. But I take them off before I go in because I, I, didn't, you know, I wouldn't look cool. I wanted to look cool. <laughs> so I... Uh, I walk in, and I can't see anything. <laughs> Everything, my my vision was like twenty six hundred. It was like crazy. It was off the charts, literally off the charts. So, but I could hear a band playing off in the left hand corner, far you know, at the 
far end of, of the building. So I, I kind of walked straight that way, and I, I just remembered the, the crowd kind of parting. It was like the Red Sea. They were like, <laughs> I, I remember the people got close enough to me, they looked at me like I was crazy. And I must have <laughs> had a wild look in my eye, but I, I walked straight up or straight diagonally toward the stage and got to the stage. And they finished the song, and I, I asked him if I could if I could sing a song. And the uh, the lead singer said, "Get up, you know, get out of here." But Revere, who was playing piano, and it was one of his first, he had just been hired as a piano player. And he said, "Well, sure, let him do it." He thought it might be, you know, a, a, an amusement. <laughs> if, if if I was good, it was great. If I was bad, it would still work out, you know. So. I get, he says, uh, what do you want to sing? I said, anything you want to play. <laughs> he said, do you know uh, You Win Again? I said, sure, the old Hank Williams tune that Jerry, Jerry Lee put on the flip side of one of his hit records. Right. And he said, yeah, that one. So he said, he said, what key? I said, any key. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't even know what a key was. <laughs> and uh, so they, they picked the key, probably G. And I got up and sang the song, and while I was singing, it, I was in heaven. It was it was incredible. I was it was wonderful. But then, as soon as I finished, I the world suddenly came back to me, and I realized that I was on stage. I just finished singing a song, and 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 that wasn't you know I was overcome with with the shy kid that I really was. So I split. And, and left hurriedly. The next day was Sunday. It was, this was Saturday night. This day was Sunday, and on Sunday, McClure's Lakery did not deliver buns. They didn't have their trucks out on Sunday. So Revere had to come down to the bakery to pick up his bun, bun order for that day. <laughs> and, and I'm kind of slow that morning because I got up late probably. <clears throat> and... Uh, so Revere comes in, and while he's waiting for me to, to finish wrapping his order, he says, you know, we played right up the street here uh, last night. I said, yeah. He said, yeah, in the middle of the show, this, the weirdest thing happened. This this real skinny-looking kid with a wild look in his eye came up and demanded to sing a song. And I said, well, did you let him? He said, yeah. I said, well, how was he? And Revere said, you know, he wasn't bad. And I whipped out my, my glasses and my baker's hat. It was me. <laughs> so, you, so you went you went from Clark Kent to Superman, just taking off those glasses. Uh, kind of, yeah, kind of a reverse thing. Absolutely. <laughs> Except I didn't have the cape yet. But oh my gosh! Well, anyway. you would you would get capes, you would get uniforms, uh, you, you would get it all. Although you weren't you weren't the Raiders at first. You guys began as uh, the Downbeats. How did you end up changing the name? Well. Uh, First of all, the downbeats happened. We were, I, I was singing in the band. I was getting half of, of, of like if the, if the band got, if every guy, guy got 10 bucks, I got five bucks because Revere explained to me, well, you don't do anything but sing. You don't play an instrument, so you don't get full pay. <laughs> so I said, now, if you played something like a sax, that's all he had to say. I went down and traded in a beautiful, probably 1930. Uh, Epiphone acoustic guitar for uh, a new 1959 uh, Semler Mark VI, and didn't didn't even know how to hold it. So I decided <laughs> to need some lessons. 
There was a guy in town named Rennie who taught sax. He also taught music at the, at the high school. But so, I, so I, I went in. I had two lessons with him. I, I learned how to hold the, you know, where to where to place my fingers on the notes. But on the second time I went, I, I looked looked down at his um, coffee table and he had a copy of Downbeat magazine. I thought Downbeat, that's a cool name for a band. <laughs> I'm sure nobody's thought of that. <laughs> So we were at the downbeat for a little while, and then uh, we got we got signed to we. First of all, uh, Tall Cool One came out by the by the Whalers, and uh, it was a big hit in Idaho. And I told Revere, I said, "Look, man, these guys. You know, I, you know, I thought we're never going to be able to make a record because you got to be from Los Angeles or the East Coast or Chicago or somewhere to, to do that. You can't make a record in Idaho, but." All of a sudden, a tall cooling came out. So I said, well, these guys are from the, you know, they're from the Northwest. They're from Seattle. If they can make a record, we should be able to. So we found out that there was a great studio in Boise, IMN Productions, in Network, Network Productions, where they did uh, commercials for radio stations all over the Northwest. They had a great studio. They even had a three-track studio in, in 1960, which was more than state-of-the-art at that time. So we cut some demos. We went down to L.A., knocked went first to Capitol Records, got thrown out, went to CBS, got thrown out. And he kept working his way down until he finally found this little record company that was actually a subsidiary of a pressing plant down in Gardena. Uh, and the guy liked, liked the stuff. So we all went down to, uh, to L.A. to sign the contracts. And uh, we, <laughs> we we didn't know much about uh, Los Angeles. And instead of taking the freeway down to Gardena, we took Western Avenue all the way down and took us about two hours to get there. We finally get there. We we meet with John Gus. And he says, well, you got to sign these contracts and write your full name, your full name and, and your age and all the, all the good stuff. So we did, and he's looking at the contracts after we signed them. He says, hmm. And, and Revere, at, at that time, was only known as Paul Dick because he'd been te- teased unmercifully. Right. Still there? Oh, yeah, yeah. When he was in school, Paul Revere, where's your horse? You know, so he, <laughs> he dropped the middle name and, and went, went as, you know, Paul Dick. He thought that was better than Paul Revere Dick. So... John Gus says, you know, Downbeats is okay. That's cool. But now, Paul Revere, everybody, everybody named, knows Paul Revere. I mean, he was a hero of the American Revolution. Uh, you guys need to call yourself something like uh, uh, Paul Revere and the Knight Riders or Paul Revere. And he kept suggesting several things. And Revere said, no, 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 no. He, he had wanted nothing to do with Paul Revere. It was a, a big thorn in his side. So, John says, well, okay, whatever you want. And, of course, when the record came out on the label, it said Paul Revere and the Knight Riders. <laughs> well, I said, you know, Knight Riders, that sounds like a cowboy, uh, Western band. We should be Paul Revere and the something else. And that night I had a dream, and I saw us playing on stage, but we were playing on the, on the stage of a, of a pirate ship somehow, and we were swinging through the rigging and stuff, and... 
I thought, you know, that we were like Raiders. And I, and I thought, wow, that's a cool name, Paul and the Raiders. So we called John, and he reluctantly agreed to change the name to Paul and the Raiders, and that's how, how the name became uh, and stayed. We're talking with Mark Lindsay here on Downtown. Now, it was your recording of Louie Louie that got the attention of, of CBS Records, and I think I'm right that you guys and the Kingsmen recorded it around the same time in the same studio. Now, is the is the legend true that it was Mitch Miller that did not want you guys to release Louie Louie as a single? Well, Mitch Miller didn't want any rock and roll groups on his label. I mean, he was he hated rock and roll. He thought it was a passing fad, and if he just waited it out, you know, it would pass, and then he'd get back to the sing-along with Mitch, and that was, <laughs> that was, that was his thing. Uh, so... We moved to uh, Oregon. Revere has to, because Revere, it was draft time. Everybody, everybody, everyone was getting drafted for Vietnam if they were of, of an age. And Paul got drafted, except he was, uh, his brothers, he had two brothers, and during World War II, they both signed up as conscientious objectors. His, his folks were more religious than he was. And so when Paul came time for him to sign up, he signed up just automatically as a CO. And uh, to 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 serve out his service, he had to find a, a hospital or a mental institution or something where he could serve out for two years as a cook or whatever. Mental, you know, he had to do something for his for his uh, military service. So we moved to Oregon. I, I, you know, he said, it's all over. I said, no, no, no I'll, I'll go down to L.A. I'll keep on Paul on, on John Gus's butt so he doesn't forget about us. And then when you get out, we'll start the band again uh, here. We'll find some more musicians and start here. So that's what happened. We, uh, we, we became a, a hot band in the Portland area. There was another band in the Portland area called the Kingsmen who were are kind of our, our supposedly our our, nem, our arch enemies. They weren't. They were they were friends of ours. And and uh, at, at our dances, people kept requesting this song called Louie Louie. We didn't have any idea what a Louie Louie was. <laughs> so I was talking to Rich uh, uh, Mike Mitchell, rather the guitar player from the Kingsmen. I said, do you know, have you heard a song called Louie Louie? He said, sure. He said, we play it three or four times a night. And I said, well, I've never heard of it. He said, well, look, I'll bring you the, the 45. So the next day, he came in with a copy of Rock and Robin Roberts and the Whalers version of Louie Louie, which was written by Richard Berry, of course. And we, we learned it. And it just so happened that our, our manager was a DJ. They had a manager who was also a DJ. But... Uh, they somehow simultaneously got the idea to cut Louie Louie since it was such a popular song. So we were, there's a giant argument. Paul always says we cut the song first. Always said, excuse me, Paul's no longer with us. And uh, I don't know, I can't swear which one came first. All, All I remember is we cut, Louie Louie, and on the flip side, we got Night Train, which was a sax instrumental, sax and guitar instrumental. And as I'm packing up my sax in the control room, 
the engineer said, if I were you guys, I would get Louis Louis out right away. And I said, why? He said, because the Kingsmen were in there a couple of days ago, and they cut a demo on Louis Louis. Well, what he thought was the demo was the finished <laughs> master of Louis Louis, of the Kingsman's Louis Louis. So, with, to my memory, they cut it first, but it was cut the same week, same studio, same engineer, same everything, same song, except uh, we had the hit up and down the coast. When the, the song first came out, both versions came out. They sold 600 copies in, in Portland. We sold 6,000. Wow. <laughs> so we got the attention of, of CBS. One of the uh, CBS promo guys came to, and he, he heard the song and heard the story. So he took it down to uh, CBS uh, in, uh, in L.A. And about that time, people were leaning. Mitch Miller was the head of A&R for, for uh, West Coast A&R for CBS Records at that time. And people were leaning on him to uh, sign a rock and roll band because they said, you know, rock and roll is really happening. People are having big hits selling a lot of records, and we're kind of getting lost in dust with Doris Day and <laughs> and our old artists. So, so reluctantly, uh, Mitch signed us, but they did no promo for us, and we, we, we played up and down the coast all, almost all the way to Los Angeles. We had San Francisco tied up. Uh, uh, of course, Seattle, and basically all the way down the coast, everywhere except L.A. We were just getting ready to break into L.A. when somebody from Scepter One Records uh, heard about the competition and figured it out. So they went to one of the black stations in L.A., uh, and they went to the program director and said, you know, it's really it's really a shame how these, these white boys are trying to ace out our brothers with, with Louie Louie. And they, they, they didn't actually tell a lie, but they kind of made left the impression that the Kingsmen were a black group. So, <laughs> <coughs> so um, the black station goes on Louie Louie in L.A. It becomes a huge hit, and we are left in the dust. And uh, and CBS kind of like forgets about us for a while, but we they we get we meet Larry, uh, Terry Terry Melcher, who becomes our producer. We find some uh, records that we we cut we cut a few ourselves. Uh, we had, <laughs> we had no original material, so I started writing stuff. I wrote a song called "Louie Go Home," which was kind of the answer <laughs> I thought to Louie Louie. Right. And and we at that time our repertoire was basically all black. I mean, the Kingsmen were supposed to be black, and we sounded black. <laughs> we, we, you know, we we everything from uh, was cut in New Orleans or wherever it was. We cut it. We uh, we added it to our repertoire. And and if you listen to to our version of uh, Louis Go Home, I, I I definitely sounded fairly tan. <laughs> I'll, I'll say. Well, you you, you scored. Fact, Louis Go Home is probably, except for uh, uh, one other song, which I'll mention later. Louis Go Home is the most covered song that, that I ever wrote, 
It was covered by David Bowie, who was David Jones at the time, and The Who. And uh, But The Who, this is too long a story to tell today, but uh, they... Okay, I'll tell a story. <laughs> it doesn't make sense otherwise. I'm walking across the parking lot to uh, a friend of ours, Terry Brown, who was uh, Les Brown's daughter. Les Brown and his Brown Band of Renown. Mm. And she was a big R&B uh, freak, and she loved our stuff because we sounded, we sounded R&B. So she had a huge collection of records, and I'm walking across the parking lot about six in the morning, and I meet Pete Townsend coming out of her apartment complex. He's got this weird little device in his hand. I said, "What's that?" He said, "That's the cassette player, man. It's <laughs> the latest thing. It's cool." He, he puts it over, shows me what. I said, "You mean you mean you can get a record on that?" He said, "I can get like several albums on that." I went, "Wow." So he, he basically taped most of her, her record collection, but he didn't he didn't catalog anything. He didn't write down the, the names or uh, the band, you know, anything, any information about the bands. So when Louis Go Home came out on a, a, a collection of records called Who's Missing, and they called it Louis Go Home, and they said, we don't know who who originally cut this, but you'll you'll find you know you probably if you look at the, the history of some old black artist you'll probably find it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm paraphrasing, but something like that. You'll find the information in there. Well, when we found out that we that they covered the record, we immediately uh, not we but our our minions uh, <laughs> like our publishing company called you know called him up and said, no, 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 this is really uh, a group that exists, and they headed out first, and we'd appreciate it if you'd stop, uh, start, start sending our royalties to us instead of the, the boys. <laughs> Talking with Mark Lindsay on downtown and more of our conversation coming up right after this from Cross Insurance. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Seems this world has got you down. You're feeling bad vibration brown. You open your eyes, girl. Look at me. Look at I'm gonna me. show you how it ought to be. Big hits for Paul Revere and the Raiders and lead singer Mark Lindsay, who joins us this week here on Downtown. I want to talk about uh, where the action is. You'd had a big hit with Just Like Me. Uh, what what brought you to the attention of Dick Clark? Uh, we were, the Stones were playing their first concert in, Los, in the Los Angeles area. They were in a Long Beach Auditorium. And it was the Stones with about 17 opening acts. I'm, I may be exaggerating, but not by much. There was 
what we were one of the opening acts. Caesar and Cleo was one of the opening acts. Uh, I can't remember the rest of them, that were, but it was a, you know, it, it was early in the day because Sunday and Cher were still billing themselves as Caesar and Cleo. I I remember their act. They came out, and Cher was wearing this long skirt and she all in Egyptian makeup. <laughs> and somewhere during, halfway during the first number, she whips off her skirt. She said, "In a, a short mini, I mean short." You can see her underwear, but and and Sonny gets down on his knees and, and yells, "John, Paul, George, Ringo!" and gets darted on giant screams from the audience. So I thought, well, that that'll work for a while. <laughs> anyway, so but one of the Clark secretaries happened to be in the audience, and she saw us, and, and we finished our. our we did like three or four songs. On the fourth song, it was probably Upu Padu. And I'm dancing on the piano and, and screaming my lungs out. So she goes back to Dick and says, look, you know that, that pilot you're, you're going to film for CBS? Uh, I think I've got a group to the pilot. They're, they're from Idaho. <laughs> they're going to work cheap. And they're very <laughs> visual. So we got on a pilot along with Jan and Dean and the Four Seasons and the uh, other luminaries. <laughs> <laughs> I'll slip out that way. And uh, so we got signed to a 13-week contract. And and Dick later told me we, we were having lunch with him. He said, you know, I signed you guys to 13 weeks because I thought that if the show took off, we'd be able to, to hire a real band. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So I said, well, thanks a lot, but thank you, because the show, we we became, uh, we had like over 700 television appearances, mm. network television appearances on that daily show and others, everything from uh, the Johnny Carson to... Uh, Mother's Brothers to, you know, it, whatever was happening, we were on it. And and with all that television, television uh, exposure, that helped sell records, as you probably know. And and we suddenly became uh, the, hot, the hot band, and we got signed to a longer contract. One of the great hits you had in that period uh, was, was Kicks, uh, written by Barry Mann and, of course, Cynthia Weil, who just passed away recently. That was a, a, such a great showcase for your vocal work. Oh, thank you very much. It was uh, kicks, and and then, then they followed up, they gave us a follow-up called Hungry, mm. which I I think is one of my best rock and roll performances. But, but they're both great rock and roll songs, and Cynthia was, uh, we I did a tribute uh, to her on my, I, my, my non-terrestrial radio show on Sirius. Uh, I'm trying to get ahead of myself. I'm, I'm getting in my own way here. Yeah, on American uh, Revolution. Yeah, on uh, Little Stevens Underground Garage. Right. And uh, I can't play anything. I can only play American music. I can't play anything that was English or Australian <laughs> or anywhere else in the world. It's, you know... 
Bill Stephen called me up and said, man, I, you used to have a radio show in Portland, didn't you? And I said, yeah, for a couple of years. So how would you like to be on the radio again? This, this is just a little over a year ago. I said, well, I don't know. Why not? <laughs> he said, good, you're on. <laughs> You've been doing two hours on uh, from 10 to 12 on Saturday and from 12 to 2 on, on Sunday. And I went, oh, okay. <laughs> he said, but it's American Revolution. You can't play anything that's not American music. I said, great. And that, I, I, I forgot that I left out the Beatles and the Stones. <laughs> and, so, and a lot of people that came from England, you know. But we do, we do okay. There's a lot, a lot of great music. Anyway, because uh, Cynthia passed, we did a tribute show uh, to Barry and Cynthia, or Cynthia, actually. Uh, and I had no idea how many songs that they actually wrote. Yeah. Uh, one of the songs, I'm not going to say which one, but I found one of the songs that that I'm I'm going to record on an album project that I'm working on right now. And it'll be the last uh, Barry and Cynthia song that I ever get to do because she's not there anymore. But but she has just a, a, a such a rich palette of, of music to choose from. I mean, they were, they were, they were well, uh, you lost that love and feeling. That was probably the, the most, the, I heard it was, or read somewhere, it was the most uh, played song of the, of the 20th century. Yeah, and by uh, the way, you and you and Susan Cowsill did a great job on that. Well, thank you very much. I thought when, when, when I uh, first the, the the idea of working with Susan came up, I thought we got to do love and feeling because it always bothered me that these two guys are talking about never close your eyes anymore when I kiss your lips. <laughs> I thought that's a little weird, boys. <laughs> so I thought, thought it was a boy girl song and should have been. So we Susan and I did it, and I, th- I thought it came out good too. I mean, Susan's in. Incredible vocalist. He's he's top A number one. Uh, Mark, I have to ask you. You mentioned the Rolling Stones. I've got to ask you about a story I heard years ago. Is it true that the Stones opened for you guys in Pittsburgh? This is true, and and uh, the way it happened, we were supposed to be opening for the Stones, of course, but the uh, the show, the radio, uh, the radio show. Where the action is was so big in Pittsburgh, and we were so big in Pittsburgh because of it, that the the promoter of the show, the yeah, the, the promoter of the show said, you know, uh, went to Mick and said, you know, you guys are going to have to follow the the Raiders, or yeah, no, <laughs> you guys are going to have to open for the Raiders, and Mick says, well, why who the who the f are these guys? He said, well. They have a very hot TV show, and they're they're like hotter in Pittsburgh than you guys are. So you open for them, and and Mick was feeling, but they did, and it was like I think that happened one other time, but but it didn't happen many times after that. I promise you. <laughs> We're talking with Mark Lindsay on Downtown. You had a great run of solo hits and all some terrific records. Uh, Kenny Young's Arizona. Uh, Silverbird, one of my favorites, and the grass won't pay no mind. And uh, things were going pretty well. And then uh, you ended up 
oddly enough, having the biggest Raiders hit. But was Indian Reservation, was that originally going to be a, a Mark Lindsay solo record? Yes, it was. Uh, Jack Gold, who was who Mitch Mitch had moved on to other things, and Jack Gold was now head of A&R, West, West Coast A&R. And he calls me in his office one day and says, Mark, I've got your follow-up to Arizona. I said, great, play it for me. So he plays me a few bars of uh, Indian Reservation. I said, uh, wait a minute, I know this song. It was out by Don Farland. Don Farland? Don Farland. Right, yeah. I think so. Uh, a few weeks, a few months ago, and it's stiff. He said, well, it may have, but it's number one, in, or it's uh, top of the charts in England right now. And he said, aren't you part uh, Cherokee Indian? I said, yeah. He said, well, I think you could really pull this one off. So we're going to do it. I said, well, okay. And I was very reluctant. But uh, so we, we finally cut it, and I produced it, and Ari Butler did a great uh, arrangement. Uh, and uh, John D'Angelo did the strings. And I, it came out really, really great, except at the end, it just ended. Maybe someday when there's some, but in the nation will return. Bam. So Ari and I are listening to the playback after all the musicians have left, of course. I said, Ari, this song this song just ends too abruptly. There's it needs some kind of coda. It needs something like uh you know the song, uh Janetian song, uh Society's Child. Right, yeah. Said, yeah. He said, well, I said, it needs a, a, a riff like that at the end. He said, you mean like this? And he said, plays it. I said, yeah, something like that. He said, well, we'll, we'll, we'll use that. I said, no, <laughs> we can't use that. He said, yes, you can. He said, that was my session. I played the V3. That's my my riff that I came up with. You want it on your record? You can have it. So we put it on there, and that's how it came on. And I think, I think, it was a perfect coda to the to the song, yeah. and without it, who knows? Indian Reservation might not have been as big as it was. We it had the, be the biggest. Sorry, I was going to say we we had the great Hal Blaine on our show just about a year or so uh, before he passed away, and and Hal said he thought his drum work on Indian Reservation was some of the very best of his career. It was it it was uh, very. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it, the, the stars were aligned that day because mm. when Hal arrived, he always got in early. He said, "Listen, Lindsay, look at this," and he had his his, his, uh, his drum set, which is was you know not a, a tremendously expansive, but on this one he had like all these drums all the way around. I said, "What's this?" He said, "These are new drums I just got. I can play a whole arcade now." So I said, well, that's cool. So the way Artie had, had arranged the chart, he had like a a, a one-bar break at, at, at the end, uh, at the end of the verse. And Hal did his, his thing. And it sounded great. And I, so I stopped. I said, let's do another take. And this time, Hal, do two bars there. Well, he just kept getting more and more tough. Finally, it was, it was four bars. And he just filled up the whole thing with that signature drum lick he did, and that was was one of the big selling part, points for that song, I think. Also, Hal played on uh, a lot of our stuff, mm. 
And he was, he was just an incredible drummer. He, he always had the right feel. He, he knew the right feel. And he always played it, and it, it always worked. And he was a, he was a, he'll be missed, I'll say that. Now you uh, you stepped away from uh, performing for a while. You were an A and R guy for United Artists, and uh, you were instrumental in uh, Kenny Rogers' huge comeback after the first edition. And uh, you worked with Jerry Rafferty, right, on the Baker Street album, or City to City, I think yeah, was the album. That was my uh, that was uh, how I, th- I think I auditioned. They gave me uh, a copy of. Of, of city to city, the Baker Street, which we Baker Street was on, and said, "We're thinking about get, picking up this album. Do you think there's any? Should we do this?" I said, "Well, let me take it home this weekend and listen to it." So I come back on the, after the weekend. I said, "Yeah, you definitely pick this up." I said, "It's got three, at least three hits on it." I said, "Baker Street is going to be huge." They said, but it's like eight minutes long. I said, well, hey, I can, add, you know, we can edit this down. It, it's, but it's, it, it's a great, got a great riff. Uh, it's it's going to be a smash. I, I, I predict, and don't ask me where these numbers came. I pulled them out of my ear, <laughs> but I said, uh, biggest three million seller. Uh, and, they, and after that, uh, right down the line, uh, it'll sell. It's not as good a song as Bigger Street, but it's a good song. It'll sell on Impulse. It'll sell about a million five. And then I picked one of the songs. Anyway, it came out, and it came out that way. They, they, they all sold exactly those numbers. So I got the job. But don't ask me. Oh, uh, one, one last addendum there. Uh, so it came out, but stations aren't playing it. And so I'm, I'm, I'm saying, well, to, uh, Charlie... Charlie Miner was our uh, promo guy. And I said, Charlie, why, you know, he said, well, no, no, the, 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 I get all kinds of uh, excuses uh, as to why they won't play. I said, listen, let me sit in your office with you tomorrow where you make all your calls. And so I did. And I wrote down, I, I asked him, don't ask him why they're not, ask him, don't ask him to play it, ask him why they're not playing it. <laughs> So he did, and one guy, one station said, "Well, I like that lick, but it should be in the in the end as well." And it came up with like there was eleven different versions that station radio stations wanted. <laughs> so I went to my studio, and over the weekend, got my little razor blade, <laughs> <laughs> and came back with eleven custom versions for the the eleven big stations that wanted it, or said they would would play it if it was different and said here send them these and ask them why they won't play it now <laughs> well they all went on it and and uh of course after a few weeks it all settled down to one version but uh that's that's kind of how it got off the ground so uh, that was my big claim to fame at the, at the label nothing else happened <laughs> i wanted to sign a lot of other artists but they wouldn't let me you know and there's a whole other story is you didn't have to wait for my autobiography, autobiography to uh, to read because it's it's very deep. But there was a, there was a reason why they wouldn't let me do that. But uh, or sign anybody else. They were they were afraid that I might be right again. <laughs> well, you've continued to make uh, great music, and, and of course, uh, I think you know our station is owned 
by Stephen King, and he had a rave review of uh, your terrific recording with Los Straight Jackets of Tree to Right, the old Roy Head hit. I read that, and I want to thank Stephen and and also tell him when you see him or when you hear from him that I'm really enjoying uh, fairy tales. Mm. He hasn't lost his touch. No, no, not at all. And and your music is is everywhere these days. Uh, everybody is decided, look, we need uh, we either need a Mark Lindsay solo record or we need Paul Revere and the Raiders uh, in our movie. And uh, whether it's Quentin Tarantino or whether it's Licorice Pizza, it seems everywhere you turn, there are the Raiders, there's Mark Lindsay's uh, incredible voice. It's got to be great that that music is it's not only still out there, but finding new generations of fans. Yeah, who would have who would have thunk it? You know. <laughs> well, I, those solo hits too. We we touched on them a little bit, but Silver Bird, man, that sounds as good as it did fifty years ago. Arizona, uh, just a, a great record. Now, did you produce those as well? No, those were produ- produced by Jerry Fuller. Okay, uh, and he was supposed to produce any reservation. But he and Clive Davis had a huge uh, uh, um, um, let's say a uh, uh, how, uh, how do I say this? They, they look at things a lot differently. And uh, so it turns out that Jerry could not produce any artist on 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 CBS except Johnny Mathis. And he, he was not supposed to produce he was basically forbidden to produce anybody, but Johnny heard about this and said, look, if Jerry can't produce me, I'm going to leave the label. And that scared CBS because Johnny had been there since, since the C had been put on. <laughs> You've got some uh, projects in the works too, uh, a documentary about where the action is and the music scene in LA in the 1960s. Uh, you've got a new uh, release that you're planning on called Summer of Love. Uh, can you talk a little bit about where those projects are and when we might get a chance to enjoy them? Well, uh, Summer of Love started out, uh, I heard that, that Brian Wilson was looking for some material, friend of a of mine and who worked <laughs> with Brian also, said that he was looking for some new songs. So I, I started writing songs for Brian Wilson, I thought. And uh, so I demoed him out, a couple of them, and got them to him. And it turns out he said he really liked them, but he wanted to, to kind of like try to do some stuff himself, <laughs> which, of course, he had never done before and never worked before. <laughs> but uh, so I thought, well, heck, I don't want to waste this stuff. It's really good. So I finished finished writing uh, a whole album and and put it in the can and it became Summer of Love and, and it's going to be out uh, this summer, I think. Even though we're about 60 years past the real Summer of Love or the first <laughs> Summer of Love. But, you know, a good title always works. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, do you still have your place in Maine? Uh, no. <clears throat> Pardon me. We lived uh, right... We had a farm, 50 acres, uh, just outside of Lubeck, and it was great. I mean, I, I loved, loved it up there, but we were fixing up the, the farmhouse, and our electrician fell in love with the place, and he and his friend made us an offer we couldn't refuse, so <laughs> we sold the farm, as they say. 
Well, the weather is uh, the weather is a little better down there, but you, you've got a little touch of the state of Maine. You've got a couple Maine coon cats still, right? Sure do. <laughs> and they're they they started out just as little kittens, and now they're each probably about fifteen pounds, and they're they're about half grown. Wow. They're they're going to be big big. It's a boy and a girl. They're from the same litter, so they're twins, kind of. Uh, the girl is. Uh, uh, non-hearing, but that's okay because we had a uh, kitty that before that was they couldn't hear. It didn't bother him at all. He was fearless. <laughs> he, he couldn't hear the dog barking at him, so he didn't know he was supposed to run away. <laughs> and she's kind of that way too. She's like uh, fearless, basically. But they're they're great. They're great kids, and they 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 give us a lot of a lot of pleasure, as they say. And every time we look at them, we think of Maine. You can hear Mark, of course, every weekend. Mark Lindsay's American Revolution. That's on Little Stevens Underground Garage, Channel 21, Sirius XM Radio, uh, Saturday mornings and Sunday afternoons. It's a great show, loaded with terrific music, and uh, Mark doing what he does. Mark, it's great to talk with you. I have uh, enjoyed your work for a long, long time, and it's, it's wonderful to finally catch up with you. Well, I appreciate it, Rich. And just one thing I would like to, if anybody wants to find out any, any more about the show or anything else that's going on, we uh, urge them to go to marklindsay.com where we have a, a deeper dive into the show every week. And like we have film clips of the, the artists that nobody's ever seen. And maybe they should. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. But uh, no, it's just a lot of fun. And it, it keeps, you know, I, I had no idea how much music I had never heard before until I started doing this show. <laughs> it's just, it's amazing. And, uh, it, it, you know, we just had our first anniversary uh, a couple of weeks ago. And little Stephen said, I can't believe it's been a year. Can you? I said, it has. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Mark. He's a great guy to work for. He's always doing, he's got a million things a million projects in the in the works, and he's a, he, he's very ambitious. I'll say that, and and very talented. Absolutely, well. that's awesome, Mark. Thank you so much. Uh, great talking with you. Appreciate you joining us today. Uh, stay well, and uh, we look forward to maybe talking with you again down the road. Thank you, Rich. It's Mark Lindsay talking with us all. Good time. Check out Mark's website at marklindsay.com. Give a listen to his Sirius XM radio show, Mark Lindsay's American Revolution. Uncle Stevens. Uncle Steven, Little Steven's underground garage. Uncle Steven's garage, that's a different place. You don't want to go there because he's going to make you help clean up the mess. You don't want that. It's like cleaning Carrie's garage out before he moves. <laughs> Basically, it's a whole lot of work. Little Steven's underground garage, Sirius XM Radio, Channel 21, downtown. Brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time.